Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, give us hope. In the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Become like little children if you want to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said that, but, but what is it like to be a child? I mean, they have wild imaginations, fears, curiosity, boundless energy, given to an Im imitation, needing to be loved, and, and wanting to be part of everything. For the last weeks, Matthew's gospel has Jesus often repeating the phrase, throw them out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the darkness. Little children have a very simple understanding of salvation. Bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. But that doesn't mean they know what a good person is or what a bad person is. They, they hear their parents say, oh, she's such a good person. Or they hear someone else or the media say, this person was a really bad person. But they are left to connect the dots as to what made that person a good person or that person a bad person. When faced with bad people or bad things, children often resort to good luck charms. Uh, things they hold tightly to for protection. A blankie, a stuffy, or Captain America underwear. They don't want to go anywhere without them because that thing, whatever it may be, protects them and it keeps the bad things and the bad people away. As we grow up, we exchange our stuffies and blankies and Captain America underwear for more grown-up luck charms. In the wilderness, when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, and he took a really long time, the people gathered up all of their gold, and they melted it into a golden calf, and they set it up in the middle of the camp to worship. You see, God was distant and mysterious, but this calf, it was right there where they could touch it and see it. So what are your good luck charms? What are the things that you hold tightly to? Sometimes, by the way, without even knowing it. Because you think they bring you comfort or, or make you feel safe or help you believe that everything really is going to be okay. I know the last Sundays of the church here are not easy to get through. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, the separation of the sheep and the goats, Jesus telling those who were very religious and righteous that they're not going to get to go to heaven because... They didn't have the one thing needed, and that was faith in Him. You don't have to be a kid to hear all that and wonder if God is mad at everyone. Now, we've transitioned to series B, left behind Matthew's gospel and moved into Mark's gospel, and he isn't much better. I mean, today we're dropped right into the middle of a diorama of the end of the world, which, by the way, if you're thinking theologically, makes perfect sense because we got to let go of the old before we can embrace the new, Right? Except there are a lot of things in the old that we kind of like. Things that we're not ready to let go of. I remember when I was a kid and the pastor told the story of Lot and his family fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah before those cities were destroyed. And when he talked about how evil Sodom and Gomorrah was, you just assumed that Lot and his wife would go running away as fast as possible, never looking back. And yet Lot's wife, who by the way isn't named in the scriptures, but which Jewish tradition her name is Edith, she stops and she does look back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. See, as a kid I didn't understand that, but as an adult I do. See, there are things that we are afraid to let go of, even though that we know that they are evil, that they are terrible, that, that they that they're terrible for us, but we've grown comfortable around them, and, and we're not sure how we can let go. 
Jesus is leaving the temple after Bible study. One of the disciples, obviously a small town boy, is, is just gawking at all the big buildings. Maybe the first time been to Jerusalem. And he turns to Jesus and he says, look at all these amazing buildings. And, and Jesus turns and Jesus says, they're all going to fall down like Humpty Dumpty. They walk over to the Mount of Olives, right across the street from the Temple Mount. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew turn to Jesus and say, so when is Humpty Dumpty going to fall down? And we get to listen in on the conversation, knowing, by the way, the very next chapters in Mark's gospel are filled with Jesus being arrested, tried, although it was a terrible court, beaten, whipped, crucified, and buried. So when Jesus says, you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crow, or at dawn, he's telling his friends they are not in charge of time, but he knows who is, and they need to trust him because everything that's about to happen is all part of God's perfect plan. Now, if we listen carefully, if we see this as a lesson in more than just time, it's also a preview of the days ahead. It makes a lot more sense. Jesus starts with evening. Now, the evening he's referring to is going to come a lot sooner rather than later because it starts with the Passover meal where God reminds his people of all of his promises and that he is a God who never, ever breaks his promises. And the evening continues to a garden where prayers are prayed, friends are betrayed, Jesus is arrested, and the disciples flee. Midnight is when Jesus is examined by the high priest, who do you think you are? How dare you compare yourself with the Son of God? Somebody needs to crucify him. At dawn, oh, sorry, got to back up. When the cock crows the third time, the one who promised never to leave his side, but who fled and denied Jesus three times and even said, I do not know the man, well, Peter is left crushed and hopeless. And then finally at dawn, where Jesus is condemned by the crowd, screaming, crucify him, and sentenced to death by Pilate. Jesus says, you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at the cockcrow, or at dawn. But if you're paying attention, you might catch a holy glimpse of God at work as he comes in the evening, and at midnight, and even when the cock crows, and even at the dawn, in order to save you. Jesus goes on to say, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now, even St. Mark notes, as Jesus hung on the cross, the sun stopped shining and a darkness came over the whole earth. Even after the sun returned and the moon began to glow, there was still a darkness hanging over all of God's people because the Son of God had been buried in a tomb, nail holes in his hands and feet, a, a giant piercing in his side. And then they rolled a stone in front saying, that's what you get for believing in him. So why are we talking about Holy Week when it is Advent? Isn't Advent supposed to be full of cookies and parties, eggnog and candles? And that's just what we have made it into, mostly because we didn't want to go through a second Lent. It's also why we have turned Christmas into a holiday of excess. We are looking for answers, for hope, for light, for what's going to make us feel good. And the deep darkness of Advent is just well, too depressing. And so we rebranded Advent as Christmas light. Now, the cross is dark and deathly, and I know, we know that we have to go there because it's where Jesus saved us. And so it's okay to go there once a year. 
But beyond that, it's just too much. But you know, it's only too much because we often fail to see the darkness is countered by an even greater light on Easter morning. Death is overwhelmed by eternal life. Pain is healed by love. Fear is conquered by grace. In order to understand the fullness of God's love, the brightness of God's light, the truth is we must first venture into the darkness. But that doesn't make it easy. You see, God dies on a cross. It's Jesus' body that dies, but we know that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And, and, and by the way, I know, if you're trying to add that up as a mathematician, it doesn't work, but it does in the theology of God. And Jesus is not spared any pain because he's God's son. Nor, to be honest, can he be. He's burying our sin, our pain, our failures, our lostness, and when we say our, we're talking all the sins of all the people that have ever been born. See, for Satan to be silenced, every sin, every betrayal, every curse has to be paid for. And Jesus does that for us. If we're looking for a reason for Advent, something to justify the pondering and the waiting, the darkness and the allusions to the cross, no surprise, it's actually theological in nature. You see, if we ask what's happening, it turns out God is actually doing everything. God is getting born. God is growing up. By the way, God had to leave heaven in order to get born, and he had to spend nine months in Mary's womb. God is growing up. God is living the perfect life. God is loving and forgiving the people. God is preaching. God is teaching. God is doing miracles. God is suffering. God is dying. So what are we doing? Waiting and watching. A forced passivity. An interminable waiting. See, this is not a, a turkey coma from the tryptophan or jet lag where no matter how great your intentions are, you just can't stay awake anymore. No, this is to be awaiting with purpose, with expectation, so that no matter how long it lasts, we're still waiting actively. But because it's been 2,000 years and we are in the umpteenth generation of waiting, we've grown weary. Our attention has waned. See, once upon a time, before iPhones spying on friends and family app, we had no idea when somebody was going to arrive. If it was somebody we loved, well, somebody we really wanted to see, well, there was a longing and anticipation. We stood at the window. We might have even stood on tippy toes so that we could see just a little further down the street. We watched for their car coming down the street or for their body walking down the sidewalk. Today, we just follow a little blip on the screen. So when my wife is following the little blip on the screen that's our daughter's, sometimes she groans and I say, what's the matter? And she goes, I don't know where they're going. In other words, there's an expectation and, and she's for a moment befuddled. There was a time when my oldest daughter was still weeks and weeks away from delivering grandchild number four. And all of a sudden my wife said, she's headed to the hospital. Now the reason this is a big deal is because from where my daughter lives, the nearest hospital is 45 minutes away. They actually give you a course on how to give birth in the car because you know, it's winter time and stuff. My wife is watching the little blip intently, wondering if she needs to be doing something like making a phone call to, to, to book a flight or, or something. And then all of a sudden she says, oh, never mind. She turned into Chick-fil-A, false alarm. See, if the person we are waiting for is really important, if the event is one that we have been waiting a long time for, time moves far too slowly. And with Isaiah, we cry out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and save us. If we've been waiting and the time we thought they were arriving has come and gone, 
and we have no way to follow a little blip on the screen. We might set an alarm. In other words, just, you know, so that if we happen to doze off, we'll get woke up. And we will either go to sleep or we'll go back to work or we'll continue cleaning, hoping that we will hear the phone ring or there'll be a knock at the door. If we feel like we've been stood up, that they're not coming, not now and not ever, we go to sleep. We do not set an alarm. We plan on building a blanket fort tomorrow and having Uber Eats deliver food because we're going into a major depression. But as we wait, Advent waiting, Jesus has something very different in mind. Not cleaning, not sleeping, not killing time. Jesus would have us go about our lives. Notice that? He says, I want you to go back and live out your life. We, we find this in verse 34 where Jesus says, So a man going on a journey gives his servants orders and authority, and he sets them about their work. They stationed a watchman at the door so that when the owner returned, they would be able to greet him. Now, the only warning is you need to be alert so that when, you know, I come back, I don't find you sleeping. Now, without getting too literal, because we know that if the, 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 the master is gone for a really long time, his people do need to sleep. So we discover that this sleeping is not where we just lay our head down on the pillow or take a little nap in the chair, but, but rather it is that creating a blanket fort and putting a big do not disturb sign on everything and walling us off and saying, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. So people sometimes ask if God is mad at them. And when I ask them why they think that, they haven't committed any great time crimes. They haven't destroyed any worlds. It's usually because they just say, well, I'm not sure that I've prayed enough. I'm not sure I've gone to church enough. I'm not sure I've done enough good things. The heartbreaking part of these questions is them thinking that God only loves people who spend every waking moment worshiping Him, and anyone else is unworthy. That's the Old Testament lesson that I read a few minutes ago. This brings us back to little children. You see, kids don't always know the difference between their mom and dad being angry at them and being angry at someone or something else. And unfortunately, they wind up bearing some of the pain that their parents are experiencing. See, when the mom or dad finally realize that their child is afraid and that they've been part of it and they scoop them up and they hold them and they hug them, the child immediately knows that, that they're safe, that they're loved, that everything's okay, and that even if mom or dad was mad at them, they're not anymore, and so it's okay. Such holy moments may be rare in this world, but they are plentiful in God's kingdom. The woman at the well, the man born blind, the tenth leper, the centurion servant, the thief on the cross, Mary Magdalene, Matthew, the tax collector, and it goes on and on and on. They all lived in spiritual uncertainty, thinking that God was angry at them until Jesus showed up with his arms open wide and welcomed them into the family. See, the cross shows us that God did not raise his hands in anger against us, but instead chose for his son to bear the pain and the suffering for all of humanity. This is the God we worship, and this is the God that we are waiting for. We don't need a blankie, a stuffy, or a Captain, American, a Captain America underwear. Well, they're nice, and if you got it, I think it's great. Because it doesn't take long, to be honest, before we outgrow them, before we realize that they may not be able to offer us everything that we hoped they would. Advent teaches us to wait in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the uncertainty. 
See, this is what the heart of the season is about. Waiting, even though we're not always, always exactly sure what we are waiting for other than Jesus. Nor can we necessarily put words to describe exactly what we think is going to happen. But we know that we're going to know when it arrives. And that it will be worth the wait. And that suddenly it's all going to be okay. Because Jesus is going to scoop us up and hold us. And whatever fears, whatever anxiety, whatever worries we had will simply melt away. We who live much of our lives in the darkness are not waiting just for Advent, but but we're actually waiting our whole life for light and life, which is both redemptive and terrifying at the same time. It's redemptive because it puts an end to the darkness and to the waiting, and, and suddenly we're in the presence of God and everything is healed. But that's also why it's so terrifying, because for so long, For all of our lives, the darkness has been our home. And like Lot's wife, there are times when we're just not sure we're we're ready to leave some of that behind. To wait for Christ is not a passive thing. It's more than a prayerful, churchy, worshipy thing. To wait for Christ is above all else to live in his name and for his name. To be what he created us to be. To do what he created us to do. So that when he does return, there are others in the world who have experienced him and his love and his mercy and his grace through us as, well, as imperfect as we may have witnessed about him. See, one thing is certain. If we do not bring light and life and healing and forgiveness to the world, nobody else is going to do that. Which is to say our waiting is really simply nothing more than us living with hope and sharing that hope with others around us. Perhaps we can begin our Advent waiting and living in the most simple of ways. When somebody greets us with now the new standard, Happy Holidays, we simply turn and say, Merry Christmas. Not meanly, not sticking it to them, but simply saying that Christmas without Christ is just a mess. You see, these four weeks are leading us to a stable and a manger, and most importantly, a child who is worth waiting for. He's the only one who can help us become like little children and worship and live with a wild imagination of what God is able to do and a reverent fear for God's power and curiosity about heaven and eternity and boundless energy to love and to forgive and to encourage the people around us and given to imitation as we try to follow Jesus and a need to be loved and discovering that love in Jesus. And wanting to be part of things, especially part of things that are forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.